Hello and welcome to the post-ASH edition of Sightlines podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be highlighting and discussing some key results presented at ASH 2022. First off, I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie, and Data Monitor's haematology analyst, David. Hello. And Flora. Hello. So firstly, I'm going to summarise the updated data released at ASH for Tibsovo for the treatment of acute myeloid leukaemia in the Phase 3 Agile trial. Servier Pharmaceuticals Tibsovo is the first and only drug approved by the FDA for AML patients harbouring a mutation IDH1. Such mutations occur in up to 10% of AML cases and are associated with a poor prognosis. The drug's label in the US allows its use in newly diagnosed older patients that are ineligible for intensive chemotherapy, either in combination with azacitidine or as a monotherapy, as well as in relapsed and refractory AML patients as a monotherapy. The Agile trial provided the event-free survival and the overall survival data to support Tibsovo's FDA approval in the first-line setting in May 2022. And the updates presented at ASH 2022 further support the drug's use in this population. The results show that the combination of Tibsovo and azacitidine leads to a deep and durable response that are associated with the clearance of IDH1-mutated AML cells and no second site IDH1 mutations recorded at the 12-month follow-up. This is particularly important as accumulating mutations can occur during treatment, allowing the disease to relapse, making it harder to treat. New IDH mutations um, would prolong the treatment and also weaken the clinical efficacy of Tibsovo. The data, however, also indicated that among the patients on trial who had both baseline and longitudinal DNA sequencing data available, nearly half acquired emerging mutations during treatment. While the absence of new IDH1 mutations is a very positive outcome, the fact that nearly half of the evaluable patients acquired other emerging mutations during treatment with Tibsovo and azacitidine is concerning, as they increase the likelihood of treatment resistance and ultimately disease relapse. So following the 2020 withdrawal of the European MAA for Tibsovo for relapsed and refractory AML patients, Based on EMA's CHIMP opinion that the phase one data provided up to the date did not support a positive benefit risk outcome for patients, Tibsovo's chances of entering the European market now lie on Agile and its results. With an MAA submitted to the EMA in March 2022, a decision is expected in due course. Bispecific antibodies were showcased in a number of presentations at ASH. David, were there any presentations that stood out to you at ASH? Yeah, Ellie, uh, we saw pivotal phase two data for two multiple myeloma trials, one for J&J's Takwitamab, which we'll talk about later in detail later, and one for Pfizer's anti-BCMA bispecific antibody, Alranatumab. There were also pivotal phase two data for Regeneron's anti-CD20 bispecific Andronextamab for follicular lymphoma and DLBCL. Um, in terms of next steps for Alranatumab and Andronextamab, uh, Pfizer expects a regulatory submission for Elranatumab in early 2023, which positions it as a second-to-market anti-BCMA bispecific after J&J's Tick Valley, which was approved in the EU in August and then in the US in October. Regeneron's Odronextamab is expecting regulatory filings for both DLBCL and follicular lymphoma in the second half of 2023, which positions it as a third-to-market anti-CD20 antibody for DLBCL after AbbVie and GenMab's Epcoritamab and Roche's uh, Glofitamab, 
both of which are under regulatory review in the US and Europe. For follicular lymphoma, adronexumab is expected to be the second to market after Roche's Lutsumio, which was approved in the EU in June 2022 and in the US last month. Can you tell us a bit more about talquetimab? Yeah, so talquetimab, like a lot of these bispecific antibodies, is a T-cell engager that targets the CD3 molecule on T-cells and a target on the tumor cell, in this case, GPRC5D on myeloma cells. Interestingly, GPRC5D is a novel target for myeloma, and talquitimab is positioned to be the first to market for this target. While talquitimab is expressed on myeloma cells, it is also expressed on hair, nails, and skin. And how did talquitimab fare in its clinical trial? Um, so it was evaluated in a phase 1-2 trial with fourth-line or later patients um, enrolled for the phase 2 part of the trial. Talquitimab was administered subcutaneously and was evaluated at two recommended phase two doses, either 0.4 milligram per kilogram once a week or 0.8 milligram per kilogram every two weeks. The two doses reported similar efficacy with an overall response rate of 74% for the once a week dose and 73% for the every two week dose. Um, the rate of complete response or higher was 34 and 32% respectively, while the estimated median progression-free survival was 7.5 months for the once-a-week dose with the data not yet mature for the every two-week dose. Overall, these results are roughly comparable to Tick Valley, the BMA directed by Specific, which reported a slightly lower overall response rate of 63% versus 73 to 74 for Taquitamab, but a slightly higher complete response or better rate of 39% versus 32 to 34% for Taquitamab. Tegveli also reported median progression-free survival of 11.3 months compared to 7.5 months for talquitimab. In a separate cohort of younger patients with a higher prevalence of high-risk cytogenetics, the two doses were evaluated in 51 patients previously treated with either CAR-T therapy or a bispecific antibody or both. In this cohort, talquitimab reported a 63% overall response rate and a 23% complete response or better rate. Interestingly, the overall response rate was higher in patients with prior CAR-T therapy compared to patients with prior bispecific therapy, so 72% versus 44%. However, the investigator noted the smaller sample size of the latter, as well as the possibility that patients who received a bispecific antibody may be more likely to have advanced disease, as such patients would not be able to wait for the CAR-T therapy to be manufactured. However, he also noted that the reduced response rate may be due to treatment with a bispecific antibody leading to T-cell exhaustion. To address the latter possibility, a phase one trial is, investing, is investigating talquitimab combined with a PD-1 inhibitor. But the bottom line is that it is encouraging to see talquitimab active in patients previously treated with a bispecific or a CAR-T. In your opinion, was talquitimab well tolerated? Um, in terms of safety, cytokine release, release, cytokine release syndrome was the most common adverse event occurring in 72 to 79% of patients, but was mostly grade 1 and 2, with grade 3, 4 events occurring in just 1 to 2% of patients. Neurological adverse events occurred, to 10, occurred in 10 to 11% of patients, with grade 3 events occurring in 1.6 to 1.8% of patients, with no grade 4 or higher events. Taste disorder, skin, and nail-related adverse events are associated with the GPRC5D target, and events in these categories were all grade one or two. Um, skin-related events occurred in 56 to 68% uh, to of patients. 
Nail events occurred in about 52% of patients, while taste disorder occurred in 46 to 48% of patients. Uh, taste disorder was managed with supportive care and at times with dose reduction, uh, which occurred in up to 15% of patients. Although there were two COVID-19 related deaths, the rate of grade three, four infections was between 12 and 17%, which is much lower than the 45% reported for tick belly. Discontinuation due to adverse effects occurred in five to 6% of patients, depending on the dose schedule. That sounds promising. And um, what do you think are the next steps for Talquetamab? A regulatory submission has been made to US and EU authorities with an approval expected in late 2023. Um, a confirmatory phase three trial was initiated in October 2022 and is comparing Talquitamab combined with Darzlex and Pomalist to Darzlex combined with Pomalist and Dexamethasone in second line or later patients. The trial also includes a cohort getting Talquitamab combined with Darzlex. Um, the estimated primary completion date of the trial is February 2026. Are there any other agents targeting GPRC5D? So at ASH, we saw phase one results from two other GPRC5D targeted agents, a bispecific antibody from Roche and a CAR-T therapy from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Roche's bispecific antibody, RG6234, is differentiated from Talquitamab by having two binders for GPRC5D. And at ASH, we saw dose escalation data for 49 patients treated with an intravenous formulation and 55 patients treated with a subcutaneous formulation. Across all doses tested, the IV formulation reported an overall response rate of 71% and a complete response or better rate of 35%, while the subcutaneous formulation reported an overall response rate of 64% and a complete response or better rate of 26%. In terms of safety, the CRS rate uh, was 79 to 82%, with most of the events being grade one and two, and just 2% of patients with grade three, four CRS. Neurological events occurred in 9% of patients, with grade three or, or higher events occurring in 2% of patients. Skin-related events occurred in uh, 72 to 82% of patients. These were all grade one, two with the IV formulation, but grade three events were seen in 15% of patients treated with a subcutaneous formulation. Hair and nail events were seen in 18 to 22% of patients and were all grade one, two. Um, events affecting the mucosal epithelium or the tongue were seen in 71 to 75% of patients with grade three events seen in 6% of patients. So overall, the Roche biospecific seems similar to the J&J biospecific, but with a lower rate of nail events and a higher rate of grade three skin and tongue events, especially with a subcutaneous formulation. The Roche biospecific also reported one grade five event of acute respiratory failure in the subcutaneous cohort, which is concerning. Um, in terms of next steps, Roche says it is continuing with op optimization of the intravenous and subcutaneous dosing and is planning combination studies with standard of care agents. Another agent targeting GPRC5D um, is Bristol's autologous CAR-T product, BMS986393. In 19 patients and across all doses, the CAR-T reported an overall response rate of 90% and a complete response or better rate of 47%. In terms of safety, CRS was reported uh, in 64% of patients with 6% of patients reporting grade three, four CRS. Neurotoxicity was reported just 6% of patients and was all grade one, two. 
on target off tumor adverse events were seen in just 30% of patients and were all grade one. They included taste disorder events in 15% of patients and nail disorder events in 9% of patients. Overall, based on this preliminary data, the CAR-T seems to have better efficacy than the biospecifics. And although the grade three, four CRS rate is higher, the rate of neurological adverse events and the rate of skin, nail, and taste adverse events is lower. In terms of next steps, uh, Bristol says they will be starting the dose expansion part of the trial ne um, next. Overall, I would say that GPR-C5D is following in the footsteps of BCMA as a new target for multiple myeloma. Thanks, David. Um, and ASH 2022 also saw exciting results released from several early phase trials for non-covalent BTKIs in CLL. Flora, please could you talk through the results released from the phase one to Bruin um, trial and what they mean for Eli Lilly's Pertobrutinib? Yeah, so Lilly released several sets of results from the phase one to um, Bruin trial at ASH 2022 and all of which um, demonstrated pertobrutinib's impressive efficacy within relapsed refractory CLL patients, many of which were actually in fact heavily pretreated. So one of the presentations specifically looked at a BTKI pretreated population and pertobrutinib ex exhibited impressive efficacy uh, with an overall response rate of 74% and a median PFS of 19.4 months in this setting. So for CLL, the treatment landscape in first line and second line is pretty well defined. Um, it's typically initial treatment with a BTKI, usually in Brubica, although we are seeing a switch to CalQuence now as well. Um, and then if a patient is to progress uh, or experience disease progression on this BTKI, then it's typically followed by treatment with a BCL2 inhibitor, Venclexta. Um, and that's really become the standard of care treatment pathway for both high risk and low risk genomic patients. But then when we look at the third line and beyond setting in CLL, treatment options for these patients start to become more limited. So patients who have progressed on both a BTKI uh, inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor, they only really have the option of a PI3K inhibitor unless they go down the route of clinical trials or allogeneic uh, transplant. So the problem with this is the PI3Ks are becoming more rapidly known as a class of drugs that's kind of riddled with toxicity issues. Um, both Zydelic and Copictra carry black box warnings and they have had uh, FDA public health safety warnings released for them as well. So this airline setting is in real need of an effective but also most importantly, a safe drug. So looking at these results uh, from Bruin, pertobrutinib's overall response rate and PFS rate in the BTKI pretreated patients does parallel um, the 77% ORR and 19.4 months PFS, which were reported for Zydelic in the phase three 0116 trial from which uh, Zydelic was approved. So efficacy-wise, uh, pertobrutinib is uh, standing well to compete with the PI3Ks. Um, so the key differentiator for pertobrutinib in these results is uh, their promising safety and tolerability profile. So in the safety cohort presented at ASH, only 2% of patients discontinued pertobrutinib treatment due to treatment-related adverse events. Um, which is a really good indication that pertobrutinib will enter 
the third line market with key advantage. Moreover, the rates of grade three or more treatment emergent adverse events, which are commonly associated with the use of BTKI therapies, so that's uh, hypertension, hemorrhage and atrial fibrillation, these were also um, low. They were also reported as low for pertobrutinib in trial. And that's another good sign that this therapy has an attractive safety profile. So I think I think these results will be really exciting for Lily as they sit they set pertobrutinib up nicely to address one of the biggest unmet needs in the CLL space currently, and that's the need for safe third line um, and beyond therapies. And then uh, in another one of Lily's presentations at ASH, they further confirmed this, uh, where they looked specifically at pertobrutinib in a BTKI intolerant uh, setting. So as I mentioned, third line options for patients who have experienced disease progression is a major unmet need. But there is also um, a significant portion of patients which reach third line therapy due to intolerance issues. So Imbruvica is known, although it's very efficacious, it is also burdened with high rates of cardiac disorders, um, namely atrial fibrillation. So the second generation BTKIs, Calquence and Brukinsa, have reported lower rates of AFib and also improved tolerability profiles, but they do still present similar side effects, um, just to a lesser degree. Then Benclexta offers an alternative option for patients with BTKI intolerance, but this is also challenged by risk of tumor lysis syndrome and um, it has the need for a ramp up dosing. So with this uh, cohort and these results, I really, really hope to show pertobrutinib to be a tolerable BTKI therapy for heavily pre-treated patients who are intolerant to previous BTKIs. And I think they were successful in showing that. Only 13% of patients uh, experienced a grade three or more pertobrutinib treatment emergent adverse event which fell within the same category as a treatment emergent adverse event, which led to their prior covalent BTKI discontinuation. So when you take all of these results together, the BTKI pretreated and BTKI intolerant cohorts, um, they suggest pertobrutinib is not only safe and effective in third line patients who have progressed or become resistant uh, to P BTKI therapy, but it's also that a well-tolerated therapy for those patients who um, weren't, were, became intolerant to BT, uh, previous covalent BTKI therapy. So what's really important about these results is that um, collectively they'll allow Lily's pertobrutinib access to the majority of the third line and beyond settings really just increase in its accessible market uh, quite significantly. And Merck also presented results from uh, for their non-covalent BTKI nemtabrutinib at ASH. How successful do you think non-covalent BTKIs will be in the CLL space? And how do these two BTKIs compare with each other? Yeah, so what's so exciting about the non-covalent BTKIs is their binding mechanism it differs from that of the covalent BTKIs in that they don't bind to that cysteine residue in BTK's uh, active site, meaning they can surpass the issue of C481 resistance. And BTKI resistance, as I mentioned earlier, it represents an area of major unmet needs. So I think the non-covalent BTKIs will be very successful, especially in the refractory setting. 
um, if they continue to prove efficacious in these patients. Both pertobrutinib and nemptobrutinib have demonstrated good preclinical and early phase clinical data um, to suggest that they are efficacious against BTK mutants. So in the results presented at ASH from the phase 1-2 Bell Wave 001 trial, Merck's nemptobrutinib demonstrated an overall response rate of 56%. Pertobrutinib is admittedly further in the development process, but if we look back at the 9.4 months follow-up of the phase 1-2 Bruin trial, we see pertobrutinib reported an overall response rate of 68%. So whilst at first glance this overall response rate um, does look perhaps more impressive, there are some key differences uh, between the trials that we should consider. So the medium number of prior therapies within Bruin um, was lower than that of Bellwave. And then the percentage of patients carrying the high-risk DEL17P mutation was also lower in Bruin than in Bellwave as well. So uh, when we consider this, Bellwave appears to have a more refractory and higher-risk patient demographic, um, which could potentially explain why the uh, lower ORR at similar um, month follow-up. So I think overall, considering all of this, we need more mature and later phase clinical data to really compare these two agents. Um, but however, with pertobrutinib entering multiple phase three trials currently, it does look that um, Lilies will take the uh, win of first market non-covalent BTKI just ahead of Merck. Both these non-covalent BTKIs have been prepositioned as efficacious for Richard's transformation, with Lily presenting data for pertobrutinib in these patients at ASH. How do you think these will compare in this setting? Yeah, so Richter's transformation represents another major area of unmet need. Um, just because with limited treatment options, patients have a remarkable prognosis. Um, Luckily, it only affects a small proportion of CLL patients, with it estimated that there's somewhere between 2 to 10% of CLL and SLL patients, which will develop Richter's um, syndrome. But although it is a small patient population, the lack of efficacious therapies for Richter's syndrome does offer a promising market opportunity for the non-covalent BTKIs to capture. In the Bruin data um, presented at ASH, Pertobrutinib demonstrated an overall response rate of 54% in these Richter's uh, transformation patient cohort. When we compare this with the reported response rates for typical Richter's syndrome therapies that are already approved, um, these being predominantly comprised um, of therapies which were initially developed for acute lymphoblastic leukemia or non-Hodgkin's non lymphoma, we're looking at response rates reported in the range of 5% to 43%. So an overall response rate of 54% for pertobrutinib is very promising. The data is still fairly immature at only 9.7 months follow-up, um, but I do think it's definitely indi indicative of pertobrutinib holding great potential to, be, to, to really transform outcomes for these patients. And I am excited to see the release of longer-term survival data. I also think this data sets the stage uh, for non-covalent BTKIs as a class in general um, within this setting. So nemptobrutinib showed activity in vivo in Richter's transformation models, 
Um, and cohort C of the Bell Wave 001 study is investigating the drug's efficacy and safety in Richter syndrome patients as well. Um, clinical data for cohort C has not been yet been released, but I expect them to Brutinib to also exhibit promising efficacy in these patients too. Thank you, Flora. Thank you everyone for listening. Goodbye.